Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. On the podcast today, I am joined by Martin Burnma. He is an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame in New South Wales. His research focuses on issues related to corporate governance, gender, diversity, leadership, employment relations, labour standards, and modern slavery. Martin holds a master's degree in the science and arts from the University of Amsterdam and a PhD in management from the University of Technology, Sydney, where he was also a senior lecturer. He's previously worked for the United Workers Union, the Australian Institute, Greenpeace International. In 2019, he co-authored Addressing Modern Slavery with uh, Dr Justine Nolan, a book that has been endorsed by Amnesty International's former Secretary General, Kumar Nudu, and the New South Wales Interim Anti-Slavery Commissioner, Jennifer Byrne. Good afternoon and hello, Martine. How are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Uh, I'm doing amazing, thank you. Now, you're in Sydney today. I am too. Okay. What's happening in Sydney? Is there anything exciting? What's what's the weather like? Uh, weather's good. Uh, apart from that, you know, it's Thursday, so we're over halfway. Um, yep. So it's good. We're on the way to the weekend. It's Friday Eve. Oh, sorry. It's Friday Eve. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It's great to have you on the podcast. Now, today, we are going to get into the very serious topic of modern slavery. And you've done quite a lot of work. In fact, super impressed with the, the level in which you've looked at this. But this is an international issue. It's not just an Australian-New Zealand issue, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah so globally, um, <clears throat> there are an estimated 40.3 million uh, victims of uh, modern slavery currently. Um, mm. And of those, about 15 million are trapped in uh, forced marriage and about uh, 16 million are trapped in um, forced labor related to the private economy. So that's the type of forced labor that's connected to companies, for example, in New Zealand or in uh, Australia. And then there's a sort of um, the remainder of victims are, for example, subject to the worst forms of child labor, including child slavery and and other forms of uh, labor exploitation. Yeah, but that, that, that's quite the core because beyond that, um, there are the people that are associated with modern slavery. So there are the people that are organising it. And, and there's the recipients, of course, the, the, you know, the consumers. I mean, we go and buy products or services that have been tainted by modern slavery. So the, I guess this affects a lot more than just 40 million people in the world, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, that... Um, that type of uh, awareness has really grown following the introduction of the um, of the Modern Slavery Act in um, in Australia. Obviously, before that, we saw the introduction of Modern Slavery Act in t- 2015 in the UK, and obviously, New Zealand is considering um, introducing its own Modern Slavery Act. And I think that type of awareness, uh, um, sort of raising activity, has really, I think, cemented within the mind of the consumer the fact that you know. Um, when they put the Nutella on the bread, you know, it's a question of, 
you know, where do the hazelnuts come from, or where yeah. does the in, under what conditions are is the palm palm oil source that's in the Nutella? You know, um, where does the chocolate come from? So and this is just to name one item, but obviously the same goes for electronics that you use every day. There's this whole wide range of um, items that you are in touch with every day that have the potential to be produced uh, by means of forced labor. Yeah. Okay. Well, well that's r- really good. So, Martin, can we? Try and put some definitions, because when we talk about slavery, uh, I mean the the most easiest or the, the the immediate the immediacy is to think of, okay, well let's think of the the, the slave states in the U.S. in the eighteen sixties or, or and before, um, you know where you've got predominantly uh, West African workers who have been grabbed like literally grabbed mm. and taken to the United States or, or even the Caribbean, you know, because the English were, were, were pretty involved in slave trading. Um, and so that's the picture that someone has in mind of a slave. Um, we, how do we define that now in 2022? What does modern slavery look like? Well, and, well what, how do we define it? That's a very good question, um, Chris. Um, the term modern slavery is actually not a very helpful uh, term exactly for the reason that you just point out because it conjures up these um, notions of, let's say, traditional slavery or the transatlantic uh, slave trade that you uh, just uh, described. Now, <clears throat> with modern slavery, there's there's basically two main differences between uh, modern slavery and traditional slavery. Now, Traditional slavery obviously revolved around uh, a sort of a, an ownership relation between a master and a slave. So you were mm-hmm. the legal property, basically, as a slave, you were the legal property of your master. Now, obviously, today in today's age, slavery has become abolished. So we don't have that legal uh, ownership element to the definition anymore. As a matter of fact, it's no longer about ownership, but it's about illegal control that people exercise over people that are being exploited. So that's um, a a very important distinction to make. And then secondly, there's no longer sort of a market that exists on which slaves are bought and sold. So obviously, again, with transatlantic slave trade, you know, you have auctions where you can buy people to, you know, perform labor or whatever. And and in today's day and age, you don't actually have a market like that anymore. What happens now is that people become trapped in slavery for a variety of of reasons, you know, due to their precarity, their, you know, um, immigration status, just the sheer um, misery and desperation that they experience. And the fact that, you know, someone is there, the exploiter ultimately, who is, you know, taking advantage of that person's um, situation. Um, The definitional uh, sort of element to that is that, well, so modern slavery is effectively a bit of a umbrella term so you know it forced marriage falls under the modern slavery uh, definition for example but so does forced labor uh, so does child slavery so does debt bondage so there's a number of terms that have been lumped in uh, together and um, that is not always uh, helpful because um, for example for companies that may in the future be reporting on um, on slavery in New Zealand for example where we already have companies doing so in uh, Australia, the forced marriage question is obviously less relevant to them than the forced labor question, and specifically the forced labor that takes place in relation to the private economy, and therefore can be linked to um, to you know commercial enterprise in uh, in Australia and New Zealand. 
one final thing I'll add to that is when we talk about modern slavery um, as well, it, 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 it's oftentimes described as quite a static phenomenon. And mm. a lot of um, research, including my own, indicates that actually it's very important to look at the continuum of exploitation. So, you know, people might actually be employed uh, or work under quite reasonable conditions, but due to various, can, um, you know, external factors or factors beyond their control, those conditions might actually deteriorate to a point where they actually don't control those um, uh, conditions and can't leave that sort of employment relationship. And a good example of that is obviously has been COVID, which is actually, um, you know, in the very midst of the COVID crisis, so many people, um, specifically in the Asia Pacific, due to sort of global supply chain turmoil, um, you know, lost their job or lost control over working conditions. So with modern slavery, we always have to consider the fact that People may move along a spectrum with decent work all the way on one end, which means you know you get paid mm. a living wage, you get paid all the entitlements and whatnot that you you know that you are entitled to and whatnot, um, and all the way on the other end is modern slavery. But in between that is a whole range of um, types of work and treatment of people that uh, that we need to consider, and we need to consider the fact that people can move along that uh, continuum as well. So it, it it sounds to me it's more of a spectrum. So you you can move across that, because in in some ways, I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, if 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 we take the the, the classical notion of, of you know uh, a a slave operating in a in a slave state in in the United States during the during the the mid eighteen hundreds, you know, they're 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 not being paid uh, their property of the the landowner or their their owner, you know, working on a you know often an agricultural agricultural scenario, but the owners providing them with accommodation, food, you know, all of that, you know, if you go back to Maslow's, you know, hierarchy of needs, they're all kind of being met, okay? And then if we contrast that to 2022, you know, an employer who, for example, is abusing the employment relationship may not be paying the living wage, you know, the person working for them actually may not necessarily be any better off. Um, in fact, they could be quite possibly worse off working in, in that environment um, where, you know, they're not even able to meet the requirements for decent housing, um, food, um, uh, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, are we, are we actually progressing beyond, you know, a scenario where, you know, like the, God, the American Civil War, I think it was 620,000 people died, you know, fighting over this issue. Uh, you know, are we two centuries ahead actually moving along? Yeah. No, that's a good question. And, I mean, there's it's always possible to draw parallels between, um, you know, slavery and the, and the Americas and modern slavery. And, and there are indeed parallels, but it's, 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 you know, you mentioned, for example, the fact that, um, you know, ancillary services would have been provided by, you know, a, a cotton plantation owner in the same way that, you know, a current um, agricultural operator might provide services to modern people trapped in modern slavery. And actually that happens quite a lot uh, because it's part of the element of control. So if you, if your employer, um, you know, controls where you live, mm -hmm. if your control, your employer, you know, determines what you eat, if your employer transports you from where you live to where you work, those are all factors of um, of control because obviously you know food can be withheld. Um, you know the the fact that 
you live at uh, a house owned by your employer means that you pay rent to your employer so they yeah. can up the rent to indeed exercise more control over you. The fact that you're being transported there means that you don't really get an opportunity to chat to other people, et cetera. So um, that element of ancillary services has remained the same. Or, or, they, or they may even be like deducting from your wages, those absolutely. ancillary services that are being provided. Absolutely. And, and yeah. that's, and that's actually a quite common um, uh, way in which people become uh, trapped in bond slavery through debt bondage. So uh, what happens is that people are told initially that they, for example, will be making a certain amount of money every hour or day or week or whatever. And they think to themselves, oh, well, you know, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. But then that turns out that, you know, all the money that's being um, uh, withheld for the transport, for the food, for the, um, uh, for the accommodation, that doesn't, for example, that's not enough money for them to, for example, pay off a recruitment fee that they had yeah. to pay in order to get the job or other debts that they might have. And obviously that then keeps them sort of paralyzed where they might not even be able to service any potential interest that might might be uh, charged on that recruitment fee. So again, those are all sorts of you know um, illegal control strategies that exploiters use to trap people in modern slavery. And again, we come back then to that sort of idea like, well, illegal control versus legal ownership as sort of one of the key differences between but, traditional modern but slavery. But it's probably like, a, like a, when I say a fine distinction, it's it, to a, a large extent, does it really matter? Because I think you've, you, you've said it, it's You've made the phrase exploiters, okay? So it doesn't matter whether the exploiter, you know, if we go back hundreds of years, legally owns a particular person or today just has so much control over them, ownership's irrelevant. They're, they've effectively getting the same level of exploitation taking place. Mm. Um, are there particular in, uh, industries or areas of our economy where where this is more prevalent you know where where this is taking place more often yeah um well so typically we find that um industries with a low barrier of entry are more likely to have people in them uh, that are um, subject to labor exploitation or modern slavery. And I use the term low barrier of entry because I'm trying mm -hmm. to avoid the term uh, low skilled labor because I think that's a, you know, a term that we should avoid because there's lots of labor that seems simple that I wouldn't know what to do. So, or maybe um, doesn't have qualification requirements. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Um, but you know, so um, in, 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 in um, for example, we did, did a good example is in relation to agriculture like you already mentioned people performing performing agricultural um labor we've obviously you know we know all about the sweatshops in uh in southeast asia where so many of our clothes uh come from you know fast fashion is a, is a big um a problem in that regard electronics is a, is a problem and the electronic supply chain it that you know that doesn't only relate to the actual manufacturing of the electronics but also the sourcing of the raw materials that go into the electronics ultimately. Um, and yeah, the, that means that, you know, the materials industry mining specifically in Africa, where we see a lot of artisanal mines right next to sort of large industrial mines um, uh, operating. And those people that, you know, work in really dangerous conditions in those artisanal mines sell that, that sort of those goods that they mine every day to the, you know, industrial mine. And ultimately that all ends up, 
in the same products that you know we buy off the shelf. So and, and this uh, this this is this is where uh, you know Australian and New Zealanders would would have an indirect exposure to modern slavery because these are these are goods that they're consuming or you know buying. Yep. Um, which have been produced somehow along that supply chain with the use of of effectively what you've defined, uh, which I think the definition's fantastic. Um, uh, modern slavery, but I mean, is there a, a, a real risk, or, or or in your view, is there actual direct examples or of modern slavery taking place in Australia and New Zealand. And I and I, I guess the industries that spring to mind to me, mm-hmm. the the first two are, for example, um agriculture, because you know, uh, when uh you have seasons where you need fruit pickers, for example, it's uh it's um, just requires labor. You could it, it, you could get labor from anywhere in the world. And bring them in, provided you got the visa requirements all met, mm-hmm. and uh, away you go. So that's that's one area, and the other area is construction. You know, Labourers yep. that are on construction sites. I mean, New Zealand and Australia are two nations that are still literally being built, and um, that'll continue for quite some time. Uh, the people that walk around at a labouring level, you could bring them in from anywhere in the world. Um, and then you've got this opportunity for those who um, uh, aren't particularly going to comply with the law to exploit them, you know, using that exploit, you know, the exploiter type model that you've, you've mentioned. Yep. Yeah, no, indeed. Um, agriculture and construction are high risk industries. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, they're industries with a high contingent of migrant workers and migrant workers, they're a risk category to, to consider uh, as well in that regard. And for one reason, and you mentioned that just now is the sort of their their visa status. Now, um, what oftentimes happens There's oftentimes uh, conditions attached to your visa, mm. you know, might be working limitations. This is something that happened in, for example, the case of uh, international students in Australia, uh, a cap that's now actually been temporarily lifted, but they could only, um, you know, work for about, I think was 35 hours a fortnight. I mean, obviously, if you've, you know, live in any uh, capital city, whether that's in Australia or in New Zealand, you know that that's really hard to, um, you know, to make enough money to pay rent and buy your stuff. So what then oftentimes happens is that um, they'd work more than the allowed amount of hours or number of Mm -hmm. hours, I should say. And then an exploiter would go, oh, the employer could say, well, you're actually in breach of your visa condition. So, you know, you better do what as I say, because otherwise, boom, the authorities are going to be here and you're going to be, and, and, be presu- and presumably for a lot of these people who have come to Australia and New Zealand, they've come from uh, 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 an environment which isn't as attractive as living in Australia or New Zealand. In fact, actually, they may have come from somewhere that's quite oppressive anyway. Uh, they've seen this as an opportunity for a better life for themselves and all their families. Um, and so they're vulnerable because they want to stay. And the person who's kind of controlling their, well, in their their own mind, the visa scenario, is now imposing requirements or conditions or on them. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and, and this is the problem. And um, there was a report not too long ago describing sort of um, the agricultural industry in Australia, the fact that so many people come from uh, the Pacific Islands to come here on sort of seasonal worker programs. And you know, on arrival finding they're not getting paid as much and on arrival finding that they had to pay more for accommodation than they thought, et cetera, et cetera. And again, um, you know, you didn't quite often quickly hear the term modern slavery being used and it's not always technically correct because it does require people uh, to not be able to either speak up, so express mm-hmm. their voice or to leave that employment relationship. So that those are two important elements to really make it modern slavery. Um, that can still mean that they're being exploited, but if you have the capacity to pack up and leave, it's not technically modern slavery. Well, or if well, you let, have to... well let's, let's just break that down for a second yes. and, and look at it in those two components. So the first one is to speak up. Now, realistically, if you're from the Philippines or from one of the Pacific Islands and you find yourself many miles away from home and your support network and, and English may not be your first language, really, what opportunity do you have to speak up? Like, is, is that actually, a realistically, yeah. um, uh, an ability? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a very good point. I think that, you know, you can always... Um, try and speak to your coworkers, for example, to see if they're experiencing similar conditions as you are. Um, but as I mentioned, because, um, you know, the, um, the exploiters are always sort of there to control things. So they might actually limit sort of the, you know, contact with the outside world. So you won't be able to go to the shops uh, yourself uh, to get your food because that's been provided for you. Same with transportation, as I mentioned. And the other problem is that, you know, oftentimes in these situations where people are being exploited, those, for example, are also like non-unionized work sites. So there's no union rep that you can go talk mm. to. And as you mentioned, uh, the language barrier is significant. Um, you know, you might not necessarily even know what all your rights are in Australia. You know, you might just be fearful of losing your job and being stuck here, and therefore you accept these conditions. So, yeah, I mean, when I say use your voice and, and sort of speak up. I mean, that's easy, more easily said than Actually uh, done. done from a practical yeah, point of view. Absolutely. No, yeah. that is, that is challenging. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the second bit sort of the opportunity to exit, yeah. uh, exit an employment relationship. I suppose that, um, you know, people can pack up and leave. I can I can pack up and leave today if I don't want to be in this job anymore. But obviously, there's ramifications attached to that. And, you know, those ramifications are oftentimes worse for people that are already being exploited, also because they, you know, are in low-paid industries oftentimes, so they don't really have any sort of financial buffer that you can fall back on. They might have migrated here, so they might be stuck here. They won't even be able to pay their flight home, yeah. all those sorts of reasons. So, um, you know, when I say voice and exit, those are just these very simple terms, but it's kind of it. But yeah, actually um, embodying, you know, actions and what that means, what's attached to that, that's a, that's a, that's a whole different story. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure that an exploiter would say, hey, they could speak up if they want and they can leave any time that they like. But when one breaks it down to practically, to pra- you know, the, the practicalities of matters, yeah. the practical scenario is quite different. That They can't speak up, they don't have a voice, and they can't really leave because what's the alternative? They go back to a country where um, they were being, you know, they were at risk, you know, they'd probably meet the refugee s- status scenario of a threat to their lives, you know, that sort of scenario. 
they they really don't have a practical choice. They're stuck where they are, and they've just got to accept the terms because it's not a it's not an even bargaining scenario that's going on in place. No, yeah. no, there's um, there's a significant power imbalance okay. uh, there, and yeah, there can be a host of reasons. Uh, and debt is usually debt is usually one of the large ones where you might have you know taken out a loan back home and to even be able to afford to come here. So you have a loan back home, but then you've also had to pay a recruitment fee or part of a recruitment fee and you're paying off more. So yeah, there's all these dimensions which which makes exiting that, you know, employment relationship, if you want to call or, it or that. Or maybe difficult. even like as part of the, the bond that you've paid because of the recruitment fee, handing over your passport, those yep. sort of scenarios. Yeah, and that's that's often, that's also a very common control method to, to have your identity documents uh, confiscated. So obviously that leaves you then, you know, with very little room to even travel internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's all those tiny bits and pieces of control that are exerted over people, which makes it difficult for them to either speak up or to or to leave. Okay, so this we've been talking now for a few minutes, and it's been fantastic about the mischief that's in play, and and that is we, we're talking about really two, you know, characters in in this play. We've got exploiters, and we've got the exploited. Where does the law come into this? in terms of addressing that mischief. And I, I mean, I say mischief is probably a polite way of putting it. I could, I could describe it in, in, in sort of more controversial ways. But how does the law address that mischief? Yeah. Well, obviously, it's, it, there's the sort of criminal element to it. It's a criminal offence to exploit people or to sort of, you know, false imprisonment and, and the lot. Those are all, uh, you know, statutes that have been in existence mm. for a long period of time um, I think that there is in this particular instance there's a large discrepancy between you know having laws against you know, exploitation and false imprisonment and you know it and the sort of the enforcement of it so you know yeah. so much of modern slavery is hidden from plain sight so it's not like you and I go somewhere we see someone walking down the street, we recognize that modern slavery, we then pick up the phone and the police will show up or the, you know, whatnot, and they will deal with that particular situation. Um, It's a lot more sort of convoluted and more complicated uh, than that to even identify a case of uh, of modern slavery. Well, presumably Um, the exploiters, um, well, some of them may be aware that what they're doing is not right, okay? Yeah. So they're not going to go and make a... Uh, uh, you know, a public announcement about it. They're not going to publicly announce. Yeah. I've got all these workers that I got in from the Philippines. I flew over there and got them all here, and I'm paying them next to nothing. I've taken their passports off them, and mm. and you know, I'm controlling them, and 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 effectively just taking taking advantage. And the reason yeah. why I'm doing it is because I make more money doing it that way than than employing Australians or New yeah. Zealanders, um, yeah. because I can get them to do all this stuff. For way less, and the labour bill is significantly less, and it's a it's an expense that that yeah. is in my bottom line. I'm more profitable by doing it, um, but I'm not going to let um, the authorities know or anyone else know. I mean, I, I presume that's generally the way exploiters operate. Yeah, well, it's you know, there's 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 two ways in which exploiters can approach this. They can very consciously 
designed to have this elaborate sort of scheme like you just described where you source source people from overseas to come work for you here and then you know you make sure that they pay you a fee and and all that sort of jazz so that's like a really well thought through scheme um uh but and the other side of it is people opportunistically taking advantage of people's situations where they realize that someone is not in a position to speak up and one example is the one i mentioned which is for example breaching your visa conditions which could lead for you being in by someone and having to leave the country which might lead someone to an exploiter to be opportunistic and say actually i can pay these people less or make them work harder or both because i have this thing that i now can hold over them so you've got that yeah. premeditated dimension as well as a sort of opportunistic dimension uh to that so, but with so regards, you, you, you yeah, could, like, yeah so you could have uh, you know cafe owner has a little cafe down at Circular Quay. You know, people come in off the ferry from Manly or wherever, and uh, you know, you need workers. And someone turns up one day and says, "Hey, look, I want a job." And they say, "Well, you know, do you have a visa, working visa?" Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's expired. I'll give you a job, but you've these are the conditions that I'm going to require, and those yeah. conditions are exploitative. Yeah. yeah, is that is that kind of that opportunistic? Oh, I mean, way. they won't. I, th- I don't think they'll flat out say these conditions are. No, no, no. But they've but... thought to themselves, here's an opportunity. Yeah. Okay, I've got this person. They want to work legally. They can't. Yeah. Okay, I don't know their situation or whatever, but I- I'm going to take advantage. Yeah, yeah, and that that's a really good example of sort of that opportunistic uh, uh, way of approaching. And and I mean, and and um, just to come back to uh, some of the examples, so you the cafe just now like some of the other examples that you oftentimes hear are for example car washes specifically mm-hmm. the hand car washes and you know and and what i referred to before in terms of not being able to spot it um if you do have a i don't know how many hand car washes you have in new zealand but they're quite you know all over the place here in uh in in in, in there's Sydney. not enough i can tell you we need okay, more right. seriously <laughs> you should see my car it's so dirty okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um you know you can do the, you can do the maths you know you 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 drive up to the hand car wash you look at how much um it costs to get your car detailed for yeah. whatever and whatever you know inside outside detailing you you want then you know you see five six people being working on your car for for a short period of time that might be you know whatever 15 20 minutes half an hour and then you you know do calculation and say okay well i pay whatever 30 dollars to get this done there's six people doing this um uh, for, for half like, an whatever, hour 20 minutes yeah you know and then you break that down and you're like okay so this place needs to make a profit margin these people need to obviously be paid minimum wage so hold, hold on a minute that doesn't you know break down um that doesn't break down properly that's not possible for them to actually be paid an appropriate amount of money and that's not to say that they're trapped in on slavery but it means that they're definitely being exploited you can just do that calculation right yeah. there right then um and in addition to that we see like a lot of people working at these car washes um you know being from different ethnic backgrounds which you know suggests that they could well be um you know international students or other people in australia on different visas etc which again adds to that dimension of you know risk factor i suppose it heightens the risk factor of those people being exploited even worse um as a matter of fact in the uk there's been a few reports come out that actually found actual instances of modern slavery at those car washes not just underpayment and exploitation but actual um 
and modern slavery. And another example uh, often, that is oftentimes referenced is nail salons. You know, when you yeah. when you know you get your pedicure, your mani- manicure, then you have all the the nice ladies sitting there. But again, you know what you pay versus how many ladies are working there. Um, you know that doesn't always add up. And it comes, you know, in addition to that, to um, them oftentimes doing all together. Um, you know, they're always there, sort of at work. Um, being transported from their house to the workplace environment, etc. And again, you know, um, poor English skill, uh, language skills, as you, as you also referred to before. So when you sort of look at those sort of risk factors and those risk profiles, you mm. can kind of become aware of where exploitation might be um, might be taking place. Yeah, and and look, I mean, you use the car wash as a competitive environment. People are mm. making decisions based on price to a degree. So, yeah, you, you want to keep your labor costs down. That makes perfect sense. So yeah. going back to the mischief, okay, of all of this that we've been talking about and the law's response to it, I mean, there's presumably an international response, but at a more local level, if we take, let's just start off with Australia. I mean, I understand the Modern Slavery Act came into play in, mm-hmm. in 2018. You know, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the Modern Slavery Act um, in Australia is is modelled on the Modern Slavery Act that came in um, into force in the UK in 2015, and effectively what it requires companies that meet a certain annual revenue threshold to do is to do basically three things. They need to um, assess the risk of modern slavery in their operations and supply chains. They need to outline the actions they are taking to address those risks. And they need to thirdly report on the progress they're making, sort of, you know, how, what's your progress report? How well are you, how well are those actions that you're taking? How well is that going? Is that making a difference? Now to to bring that back to the question, what we took before about sort of, um, the law. One thing that I wanted to add to that as well is that, and actually the Mon um, Slavery Act in Australia is a good example of that. So the agency responsible for implementing um, um, uh, and administering, I suppose, the Mon Slavery Act in Australia was Australian Border Force. Now, yeah. if, with the new government coming in, they've actually taken that away from Australian Border Force and they've mm. placed that within the Federal uh, Attorney General's department. But it gives a real good sense of, um, as well, of sort of the agencies involved in addressing this issue. So, you yeah. know, the Border Force idea where you think, okay, well, those people that might actually be exploited in nail salons, so those people that might be exploited in car washes, those will come in at a certain stage. And that's also already a point where we can identify that people might be, you know, trafficked for particular purposes, you know, for the purpose of exploitation. So, but anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, with the Modern Slavery Act, uh, what we see now, we've, we've, we've seen a few reporting rounds. Um, we see the you know we see companies not doing all that well on on their reporting. They don't really know what it is that they need to be looking for. They're not really identifying concrete actions. They're not really holding themselves to account in terms of looking how well their actions are going. Um, and a part of the problem there, um, and we're currently undergoing the review of the Monster Act in Australia. Um, you know, right now that's happening this year. Um, the part of the problem is that there's no real hard enforcement of this law. So what it relies on is you and me as consumers to say, this company has produced a modern slavery statement that's below par. I, as a consumer, take offense. Therefore, I will take my money away from this particular company. Same with investors. where Investors are supposed to scrutinize these statements and say, this company is not doing well on this particular front. We're 
you know, going to recommend to our shareholders X, Y, Z, if you're an institutional investor or as an individual shareholder, you might say, I'm going to divest from this particular, um, from this particular company. And it's up to civil society organizations, um, you know, and academics like myself, I've produced a report called Paper Promises that sort of analyzes a number of these statements to sort of say, you know, who's doing a good job and who's doing uh, poorly. But I think, you know, the type of market-based enforcement that is underpinning the Modern Slavery Act in Australia, I think, lacks sufficient teeth to really make, uh, really make a difference. Okay. So since the Act came into force, how many prosecutions have there been? Oh, there's not been have not been any prosecutions in that regard, and and that's also not really the purpose um, 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 of the law. It, it the purpose is more for companies to, I suppose, exercise whatever leverage they do have, sort of economic leverage, over their suppliers to sort of say um, we want particular products produced under particular circumstances, i.e., not modern slavery. Uh, um, so it's basically, you know, it's it's an economic tool to, to leverage the influence of companies. But the irony, obviously, is that it's often the large companies that have actually applied applied downward cost pressure to the supply chain to supply things as cheaply as possible, which has actually led to various types of exploitation. And now, basically, they're asked to do the reverse and to sort of say, okay, well, we make sure that all the goods that we source and produce are, you know, produced and sourced um, um, ethically. So um, there was a good example actually of Woolworths in uh, Australia uh, just this week, which uh, which actually showed that Woolworths actually found uh, instances of modern slavery in its supply chain and they followed up there and they've, you know, uh, offered compensation to the people that were exploited. So there's been some actions from private actors uh, in mm. that regard, but there's not been any follow-up from um, um, uh, from public agencies with regard to Modern Slavery Act, a federal one anyway, because it doesn't even have an anti-slavery commissioner at the moment. We do have one in New South Wales, an, an yeah. anti-slavery commissioner, but there's not one at the uh, at the federal level. So it lacks teeth in okay. short. Well, well I, I guess for me, I'm asking, um, I'm asking you the question, how, how does... How does the legislation, the law that's been put in place, um, presumably as part of Australia's commitment to you know the international effort to reduce modern the impact of modern slavery, how's that measured? Like the performance of of the legislation, how, yeah. how do we measure that? That's a, that's a very good uh, that's a very good question. The need, there's a few things that companies need to do to be compliant with the Act, but um, it's Unfortunately, the act itself and what is required is sufficiently vague for companies mm. to get away with, you know, symbolic, largely symbolic mm. statements. Yeah. Um, and so measuring compliance is different to measuring effectiveness. So we can yeah. say our company is compliant because they've produced a beautiful eight-page, you know, glossy report where they tick all they say exactly what they need to say, but none of it is substantive in nature. Now, those those companies would be compliant, but they were ne wouldn't necessarily be effective. So, you know, we can we can easily conjure up the compliance stats, but in terms of effectiveness, that's a lot um, that's a lot more difficult because, well, first of all, it takes time to see what mm. you know 
uh, impact your actions are having. Secondly, a lot of companies are unfamiliar with this issue, so they don't even know really what it yeah. is that they need to be looking for. Um, and so thirdly, obviously, mon slavery is so oftentimes, you know, hidden from sight. So, you know, it's a lot of them, you know, I believe would find that they're sort of stabbing in the dark in terms of, what it is that they're meant yeah. to do. And obviously, um, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a moment in terms mm. of the New Zealand uh, mm. proposal, but a lot of smaller organizations don't necessarily have the, you know, they might meet the revenue th threshold to report, but they might not necessarily have, you know, large amount of resources that they can ded dedicate to this problem as opposed to, you know, ASX 50 companies, blue chip, blue chip yeah. stock, who obviously, you know, say, okay, well, we take this very seriously and we're just going to, you know, put a tremendous amount of resources towards this. So, you know, those things combined mean that um, it's, it's pretty hard to really give a straightforward answer as to what the impact of the act has been, but it's, it's yeah. not making the waves that I think that a lot of people hoped it would. So it may not be meeting the aspirations of those that um, were pushing for it. I mean, is, is there a risk of a bit of tokenism here where, you know, effectively the act is a, as a box has been ticked and then yeah. everyone moves on and doesn't really address it. So yes. underlying it, the problem still remains. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I think tick box exercise is, is a term that's oftentimes um, uttered in relation to the Modern Slavery Act. And a parallel that I oftentimes draw if, is with the, the Workplace Gender Equality Act in Australia, which came into force in, in 2012. Both the Workplace Gender Equality Act and the Modern Slavery Act of 2018 have the same enforcement principle. Mm -hmm. um, companies need to sort of show what they do to facilitate female career progression throughout you know, the corporation. Uh, what are they doing to reduce the gender pay gap? What are they doing to get women into senior management, et cetera? Um, that's a report they need to, you know, make public every year. And then the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, you know, mentions statistics and whatnot. And the idea, the underpinning enforcement idea is the same. You know, a consumer or investor might say, this company is not doing well on gender equality. I'm going to take my business away from them. That yeah. will teach them. But obviously, you know, since 2012, we've seen the the pay gap only reduce at a glacial pace and neither have we seen this explosion of women in senior management or positions or on corporate boards so um you know if 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 that if the workplace center called the act of 2012 is any indication of you know how what type of type of changes we'll see with the more direct 2018 then that's not um that's not particularly um positive it sounds glacial pace you know <laughs> These things move because I mean, this comes back to uh, the United Nations Protocol to Forced Labor Convention 2014. So, you know, can you can we talk about that? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that that um, I guess fits into um, the Australian modern slavery legislation? Yeah. So Australia decided to ratify that protocol uh, earlier this year, and. Um, one thing that was quite, I suppose, remarkable of that is that while Australia has been touting itself as one of the leaders in, in the modern slavery fight and whatnot, they were actually one of the last uh, countries in the Asia Pacific to actually ratify this protocol. So I suppose better late than never. Not um, the last. We'll talk about the last later. But okay. you, carry, you carry on. Okay. You sorry, carry Chris. on. No, 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 no. Don't say sorry. Let, you carry on. I just wanted okay. to make sure that listeners. Australia wasn't the last. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, 
So um, what it does, it, it, it brings the sort of modern slavery approaches uh, in line with some of the other approaches that are happening internationally and specifically in terms of uh, due diligence uh, requirements. So right now, there is not a due diligence requirement imposed onto Australian companies to look at uh, modern slavery and supply chains. They are allowed, sorry, they are required to address the risk, but there's no you know, mandated prescriptive steps that they need to demonstrate that they have taken to ensure that uh, goods and, 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 and materials that they source are not tainted by forced labor. Now, the ILO protocol that you described actually sets out a due diligence approach mm-hmm. and also, I suppose, harmonizes approaches across different jurisdictions. And because this is a global problem, it's very important that we have a harmonized approach across borders, for example, simply in terms of, for example, measuring the problem. Because, mm. you know, we talked about how modern slavery is quite difficult to define. So if a company, if a country, you know, is measuring it, but they're actually measuring something that's slightly different, for example, by mm. not including, I don't know, child slavery or, mm. you know, domestic servitude, you know, then obviously we have different tallies and we're measuring, trying to measure different, different things. Uh, and it's the same for, I suppose, you know, the cross-border dimension of modern slavery, which is obviously significant as well. If we have, you know, agencies, you know, operating under the same protocol or at least being informed by the same protocol, then, you know, we might be able to, you know, have more effective um, um, uh, actions undertaken by by the border force or customs uh, mm. as opposed to, you know, when everyone just has their own informing protocol and, and goes off on their own little tangents to try and address this issue. So international coordination in that regard is very important. Well, it's essential. I mean, both Australia and New Zealand's economies are part of the global economy. You know, globalisation is a large factor. Mm. And, of course, labour is something that you, that, you, that that is easily uh, transmittable in terms of well we can get our products you know produced in a different country and then we can move mm. them to another country and have further production and then yep. ultimately sell them wherever it is and I mean you know I know I've mentioned the US but you know the classic example is the automotive industry mm. I mean uh, uh, up until the early 80s most motor vehicles in the US were actually manufactured in the US and then they realised, well, a large cost of manufacturing cars is labour, but we can we move that all offshore. You know, we can get them built in Mexico and and in Asia, um, yep. which resulted in cities like Detroit. Literally, literally, have you been to Detroit? I have not been to the scenic Detroit. No, you haven't been to scenic Detroit. Well, look, Detroit's actually um, not a bad city now, but I mean, for for many years, decades, it was grim. It was literally a, a ghost town. It was the economic equivalent of Chernobyl. Um, <laughs> it really was, uh, because what happens is when you've got two employers in the same industry, and that industry moves all of their requirement for labour elsewhere, then the whole city just um, literally ceases to have a purpose. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I mean, I was quite shocked when I when I travelled there, and, and this was back in 2019. And of course, um, General Motors and Ford had packed up in in the in the mid 1980s. Just the the number of suburbs that were like ghost towns because yeah. labour had become globalised, and that, yeah. that's just how it operates. Anyway. <laughs> Enough about Detroit. Let's bring it closer to home. 
So New Zealand has uh, decided that it needs to play its little part in combating modern slavery. And in March last year, our minister, the New Zealand Minister for Workplace Relations and Safety, Michael Wood, released a plan of action against forced labour, people and trafficking and slavery and set out 28 actions that the government was going to take uh, all the way through to 2025. Now, these are often, unfortunately, often aspirational views. Because mm. as, you, as, as Marty, you know, government's pretty keen to talk about all the great things they'll do, whether they actually roll them out or not, it's another story. Mm. Um, but uh, New Zealand, like Australia, and then when I was going back, I wasn't joking what I was saying about the last, is that New Zealand is going to try and implement the, the international commitments under the forced labour protocol. Um, they're going to aim to, you know, they said they'll come into force and, and they'll proactively work. But um, a lot of these things just haven't happened um, because I guess at the end of the day, uh, it takes a lot of local initiative. It takes countries like Australia and New Zealand to say, we need to we need to be responsible. We need to do these things because on an international level, you know, no one's saying to them unless you do this, there's going to be downstream consequences. Have I got that right? Yeah. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, I think it's it's very important and promising that uh, New Zealand makes these uh, commitments, but. Um, you know, rolling that out is is um, is an entirely different story. I think the, you know, the murmurs of an Australian Modern Slavery Act were around for many years prior to, you know, the legislation actually um, getting over the line. And so that takes some time and specifically, you know, to build the uh, legitimacy uh, as well of the actions taken. It's important to consult all the people that will be affected by that. And, and business obviously is an important, you know, as they say, stakeholder in that regard. Mm. So, um, you know, when you look at, you know, the UK Modern Slavery Act, Australian Modern Slavery Act, but also what is proposed now in, in New Zealand, you see that, you know, it's, it's, it's not it's not imposing an incredible amount of red tape onto companies. And obviously that is always something that the business lobby is trying to avoid this idea of, mm. okay, oh, we have to comply we have these high compliance costs and whatnot. Um, so these, these, you know, basically a reporting requirement um, uh, is, you know, is, is, you know, palatable or generally not onerous. Now, what is promising about the proposal um, under consideration in New Zealand is that, it actually has a takes a bit of a staggered approach. And coming back to what I've said before about you know um, uh, the different revenue thresholds, mm. companies that have significant um, uh, revenue thresholds or revenues in uh, under the New Zealand proposal would actually be required to undertake mandatory uh, due diligence of their um, of their supply chain. So that would mean that the uh, actions taken to comply with the Modern Slavery Act for those companies would be, you know, more onerous compared to smaller uh, companies that might have lower revenue uh, threshold. And I think that's a very uh, forward-thinking approach. And I um, personally believe that, you know, we're currently um, reviewing the Modern Slavery Act in Australia. I think it would be a good outcome is if Australia would take a similar approach and say, actually, we're going to look at this from a staggered perspective. We're going to ignore resource constraints with some mm. of the smaller organizations but we're also going to say well if you have significant revenues that means you have significant 
significant environmental and social footprint. And with that influence, um, you know, comes to certain responsibility as well. So, and obviously then acknowledging that those larger companies are more likely to be able to free up resources to actually make that, um, you know, make those actions substantive rather than symbolic. So I think that's a very promising dimension of the New Zealand proposal. It is really a starting point though, as, as, or maybe it's a low-lying fruit issue, you know, let, let's get the larger companies because we get more transparency. They've got to report matters, you know, because there's reporting obligations. So we can we can see a bit more about their model, how they operate, how they make money, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but, of course, New Zealand, Australia, a large part of its economy are those smaller businesses, employ less than five people, you know, mm-hmm. might import goods that have been the, the product of modern slavery. Yeah. They, they don't have the same reporting obligations. The private companies, et cetera, they, they import goods in, they provide it to their, um, to their, their, their customers, uh, et cetera. It's, it's out there in, in, in our community. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 that part's probably more difficult to crack, isn't it? Yes. No, absolutely. And um, part of the discussion here in Australia has been, should we lower, should we have to lower the revenue threshold so that we get more, you know, entities to report under the Modern Slavery Act? Um, obviously, the problem then, and and because you're absolutely right, there are small businesses that might also be sourcing goods from producing modern slavery. There's no mm-hmm. reason why they wouldn't be doing that. The problem then is that if you lower the revenue threshold significantly, two questions. First of all, how many more instances of modern slavery are you truly going to be able to identify and remediate, especially given the fact that those small companies don't have the resources to really address this? And then secondly, and related, if we lower revenue threshold and we do have all those small businesses added to that as well, Will we not just see um, non-compliance rates shoot up because they don't really know how to comply with the act? So, you know, the usefulness of that is um, is debatable. I, I do very much agree with you that you know we're taking this sort of step-by-step approach. Um, so over time, you know, as the public becomes more aware of these issues, the types of goods that are tainted by forced labor. Um, you know, a small company might think twice to themselves before they decide to, you know, um, source garlic from Xinjiang in China. Or, you know, they think to themselves, oh, actually maybe, you know, um, sourcing uh, cacao from particular African country is probably also not a good idea because we know it's probably, you know, tainted. And actually, there's a very straightforward way of looking at this as well. Um, the U.S. Department of Labor, um, they produce a report once every two years, which basically lists, you know, high risks, high risk goods uh, and where they come from and determines whether the likely what the likelihood is of those goods being produced by forced and child labor. So. You know, there are th- those types of information out there. Um, and the other thing is, you know, if it's if it's too cheap to be true, then it's, you know, someone's probably paying the price for it somewhere, you know. So, I mean, if you if you as a wholesaler buy your fruit and veg or any other good and all of a sudden someone comes and slashes 30% of the price and just, you know, knocks the bottom out of the market and you're like, this is good. I can, you know, something's not right in those particular instances um, um, either. But 
it's a step-by-step sort of journey. And I think that disproportionate responsibility does lie by, uh, with the larger companies. And I think it's up to them in the first instance to set a good example for the rest of them. Well, it is. And I mean, it's example setting so that, um, I, I guess, to a degree, you know, from a from corporate culture point of view, we there needs to be a, a real, um, not only de- the deterrence factor that the law can have there, but you know, leading from the front to say it's not okay to ex- to to be an exploiter uh, in, mm. in any way whatsoever, and it's it's companies who are able to 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 walk the walk, talk the talk, and actually prove yeah. that that uh, are likely to um, I guess you know you know win the admiration of 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 their their consumer their, their customers their clients. Uh, hopefully their shareholders will look mm. beyond the bottom line of profit and say, I don't want to be involved in a business. That's that's an exploiter. Um, well, look, this has been a fascinating discussion and, and an insight into modern slavery and its impact in Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, I really do want to sincerely thank you um, so much for for <laughs> for giving us the benefit of of your experience and wisdom and knowledge in this area, Martin. It's it is fascinating. It's an area that I suspect um, we will see more development as time goes by because this is a developing area. You know, the Modern Slavery Act in Australia, twenty eighteen, New Zealand's movement towards adopting the uh, international protocols, and it's an area where, of course, like a lot of legislation, which is trying to deal with you know a mischief, um, needs to fine tune as those people who tend to try and exploit the legislation will look for the angles to get around it. So, you know, Martine Bernsma, thank you very much for joining me on the Law Down Under podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N dot C-O dot N-Z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.